One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we've got a special episode for you in which we're going to answer some of your questions that you've sent in. We're going to concentrate this week on questions about the UK specifically. We have had lots of questions about Brexit and Europe and trade and energy and we'll deal with those in future episodes. But for this week we're going to deal with the UK. So the first question comes from Nigel Watson. And it's how could any review of the 1970s not reference the part of the UK in near or actual civil war, in other words, Northern Ireland, or better phrased, why will Northern Ireland never be really part of the UK? This is a question following on from our episode with Dominic Sambrook about the 1970s, in which we try to talk about the parallels with today, Helen, and that sort of sense of decay and desperation and economic decline, inflation and all of that. And and Nigel is right to pick us up on this question because this was an overwhelming part of the story of, of our sense of crisis in that a part of the UK had effectively entered into anarchy and it was ungovernable. It wasn't really governed. It wasn't governed certainly in the way that the rest of the UK was governed all the time or anywhere in, in Western Europe. And I think it is absolutely right. It's like a central part of the story of the UK. It's a central part of the story of the UK today, as we're seeing with the relationship with the EU. And as Nigel says, it's not being treated as a normal part of the UK still. I mean, in fact, it never has, I would say, from its creation in the 1920s, all the way through to today, it's always been treated as a place apart. When I spoke to Arlene Foster about this, she thought that was a mistake. But I think it gets at how Northern Ireland is seen from mainland Britain, but also how Northern Ireland sees itself as well, including among most unionists. So why do I say that? I say it because right from the beginning, it gets its own prime minister, its own House of Commons, 
and its own upper chamber. It has a kind of governor general of some description. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but a sort of Queen's representative in the way that, say, Australia or Canada has. So it has this weird dominion status between 1922 and 1972, which is the moment when Edward Heath imposes direct rule on Northern Ireland. And I think how I think about this is that that Northern Ireland disappeared in 1972. And a new one was created in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. And the intervening period was a period of crisis, civil war, direct rule from London, in which this new Northern Ireland was eventually created. And it's a new Northern Ireland because it's a different constitutional setup. It hasn't got its own House of Commons, its own prime minister. It's now got a joint first minister. It's got shared power. It's got a codified relationship between Britain and Ireland, how those relationships are managed. And it has a right to to leave the UK, to secede and join a, a, a the Republic of Ireland, whenever there is a majority. Uh, so it's a completely different system. And I, and I do think that it, it's right um, to, to bring that up and to think about that relationship um, that really begins in the 70s when that old Northern Ireland disappears, collapses in on itself into anarchy, just total violence, army on the streets the the collapse of order i think when we were doing the episode with um dominic then i was quite conscious that we weren't talking about the northern ireland question particularly actually in relation to violence which we did talk about there being Mm. kind of something of a violent undercurrent to some of the politics um of the 70s and actually that is the most obvious manifestation um of it I think, though, that in a way the question gets at something which is quite revealing, which is is that although it would have been very easy to bring Northern Ireland into the conversation, in terms of the conversation that we were having, it was also very easy to keep Northern Ireland out of the the Mm. conversation. Because if you look at what went on in British politics, Westminster politics in the 70s, even while these big crises uh, happening, the imposition of direct rule, the breakdown of the power sharing agreement, the the Sunningdale um, agreement brought about by a strike, which obviously also fits quite neatly into some of the other things that we were talking about in the 70s. There is, I think, this basic consensus of which I think Enoch Powell stands outside, um, but that's why he's outside, um, which is, is that Northern Ireland is not going to infringe on the domestic contest for power at Westminster between the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, and then the Liberal Party's yeah. like role um, in that. So although this is um, a, se- a decade, the 70s, in which there's a, a overt conflict between the parties over a number of big questions, foreign policy questions, membership of the European community, economic policy, pretty much most things that you can, migration, mm-hmm. is there isn't really about Northern Ireland. Yeah. It, it, it's like, 
a kind of understanding, I think, that the last time that the Irish question, as it was then called, had really come into Westminster politics, like from late 1880s all the way through to the First World War, that it had been so destabilising to the politics at Westminster that the one thing that the British politicians, and I'm using British meaning English, Welsh, Scottish yeah. here, here, were united upon was we're not having that again. Yeah, And that in then though is actually obviously then has consequences for the kind of union you can have. And what is really interesting is that this was going on, that commitment was holding, despite the fact the 70s was a decade, certainly that the middle part of the decade, when there's a significant amount of IRA violence on Britain itself. Yeah, when you think about, you alluded to there, the start of this, with, and we don't want that again. There'd been a, an effect of an insurrection within the UK in Northern Ireland, a sort of armed insurrection from those who were refusing home rule. And this was this would have been probably a, a civil war if the First World War hadn't come along. And as you say, so there was a kind of consensus. And you look back at the Sunningdale Agreement that you mentioned, which Heath had led the discussion on. There are people who say famously that the Good Friday Agreement is Sunningdale for slow learners, that this is 25 years Later, the essential deal that was agreed then, power sharing, is what we ended up with, that actually the British state was convinced of the solution to the problem all the way back then. I think there are plenty of people who would say that's far too simplistic and there are big differences between the two, but there is also a lot of truth in that. I think also you mentioned Powell. I, I think this is really interesting. As you say, he stands out outside the consensus, as he did on lots of issues. A couple of things are really intriguing to me about Powell and Northern Ireland at the time. So he leaves the Conservative Party and ends up becoming a, a Ulster Unionist MP. 74. It's the first election in 74. Yeah. And he still thinks at the time, according to the Simon Heffer biography, that it's possible to still lead the Conservative Party as an Ulster Unionist, because there had been uh, a link between the two parties, like the German system where you have the Bavarian Party and the linked to the centre-right party there. I think they took the whip, the Conservative whip. Now that breaks down uh, at, at this time and is never stitched back together. Um, so although it was somewhat unlikely that was going to happen, or, or maybe impossible, it it wasn't entirely ludicrous for him to think that it was potentially possible uh, or that he his kind of uh, rejection of the Conservative Party wasn't totally complete in that first election in 74. But what he also does in Northern Ireland is he says to the Unionists in Northern Ireland that your loyalty as loyalists to Parliament has to be total and complete and that the way to solve this problem is to reject any difference between Northern Ireland and the rest of Britain. Uh, and so Northern Ireland has to fold itself completely. It has to get rid of its local democracy, its local autonomy, and it has to fold back into Westminster completely. Its MPs are the same as any other MPs. Now, it's not just that this is rejected in Britain. I think what's really interesting, it's rejected by the loyalists and the unionists in Northern Ireland, some of whom make the point, I think Ian Paisley makes the point, look, if we are to be completely loyal to Parliament, then logically we have to be loyal to a decision to get rid of us. 
and we're not prepared to do that. And indeed, that's how Northern Ireland began. So I think in that argument there between Powell and Paisley is an absolutely crucial uh, is absolutely crucial to understanding Northern Ireland and our relationship. And I just think it's interesting that both sides choose some form of difference. Let's move from the 1974, February 1974 election, Tom, onto our next question, which comes from SJM History. In your opinion, which general election since 1945 yielded the most surprising result? Now, obviously, there are a number of possible answers to mm. this question. I think that at the time, some people might well have made an argue, argument for the, the February 1974 election mm -hmm. that Edward Heath had called essentially on the question as he saw it, who governs Britain, the government or the miners? And he didn't win. Yeah. And now let's just put the possibilities, I think, on the table here for the most surprising result. I think the most obvious answer, leaving that one aside, which I think is a contender, mm -hmm. uh, is 2017, because it looked a month before the general election that the Conservatives were on their way to a landslide. Mm -hmm. And then under Theresa May, Conservatives lost the majority and indeed could only form a government with a confidence and supply agreement from the Democratic Unionists. There, I think is also a case perhaps for 1970 when many people thought that Labour was heading to re-election and instead the Conservatives under Edward Heath won a majority. Before we make our pick, is there any others that you think that we should put on the table? Maybe 1992? Yeah, I was going to say 92. Well, yeah. You, do, you don't <laughs> think so? I mean, I, th I think I was going to say 92 as one alternative. It wouldn't be my choice as the most surprising. I think I, I would go with 2017. Okay, what's the case for 2017 then? I think it's that it really did feel like the Conservative Party, everything had aligned. You know, Theresa May had come in and she had given that speech outside Downing Street that was wildly popular, saying that the Conservative Party hadn't focused on the right people, the, the people who were struggling, just about managing, and that she was going to govern in a different way for those less glitzy and glamorous as Osborne and Cameron. And she was sort of tough on security. She was no-nonsense, all of these things. And she just looked like she was running away with it. And and she had populist support as well over the question of Brexit. As well, Brexit means Brexit, remember all of those things. And of course, Jeremy Corbyn was just seen as completely unelectable. I remember going back to the Northeast and visiting my nan in Bishop Auckland, which was one of these seats that was just destined to fall in 2017. In fact, all of those seats in... Sedgefield, Darlington, all the way across. They were all going to go. And of course, they did go, but not in that election two years later. But it seemed impossible that Corbyn could bring it back. And it wasn't just that Corbyn was unpopular. I remember it clearly. Theresa May was really popular. This one raises, in a way, a kind of like methodological question, if you like, about answering this question. is is like, when do you put the point of surprise? <laughs> yeah. Because if you, if we're going to say take the question to mean when the election was called, which is the most surprising election mm -hmm. result based on the opinion polling, mm -hmm. then I think you would have to say, and, and the immediately prior by-election results. 
you would have to say 2017. There would, there's nothing that compares in terms of the size of the, the turnover that had to happen for the yeah. opinion polling. And remember, wasn't it a seat in, in Stoke that the, that the Conservatives have won not that long before that, mm-hmm. that general um, election? But I think if you unpack it a bit and then say, okay, why did it not turn out the way it looked when the election was first called, then it's not quite as surprising as it seems. First of all, is Theresa May turned out to be a lousy campaigner? Yeah. I mean, there was a point in that campaign when it seems she could scarcely string a sentence Yeah. Uh, together. The second was, I think, was precisely Jeremy Corbyn's weakness actually turned into his strength. Yeah. Because what was faced for, in some sense, for Labour England at a certain point was the prospect of the annihilation of the Labour Party. So weak was mm-hmm. Corbyn. So it became possible for Labour MPs and Labour candidates to run around, save the Labour Party, this local MP, forget about yep. Corbyn. And so you could then combine the support that Corbyn had from millennial, some, some millennial voters, I should say, plus that we must save the Labour Party. The Conservatives can't win such a big landslide. Yep. Uh, and then you just go off in the opposite direction than what seems like the outcome. So it's because there was that moment when it seemed like Labour could be so humiliated that in order to save it, Labour could be saved. But I also think then, in retrospect, I think this is clearer when you compare with 2019, and this is what 2019 reveals, is that it was possible for Leave voters to vote for Labour in 2017 in a way it was much harder for them to do in 2019 because they didn't have to choose between voting Labour and supporting Brexit in 2017, and they did in 2019. Absolutely, and Theresa May muddied the waters as well because she should have had the wind at her back to be able to say, I need your support to be able to go in and fight for Britain against the European Union. That was half of the pitch. And then it turned out, oh, of course she's going to win. What else are they actually doing here? And that's when you had the dementia tax and things like that, which then it did the exact opposite of what she had appeared to be before that before 2017, which is a different kind of Tory. Then suddenly it, it emerged, oh, hang on, is she the, the same kind of Tory, the old kind of Tory that's just going to make these horrible decisions and impose dementia taxes and put all of the rights and wrongs of that policy aside? I think that then made a lot of people think, no, I don't want to give them carte blanche to do this. And as you say, Jeremy Corbyn isn't opposing Brexit anyway. And then you didn't have those two years of stasis and crisis and all of that. It is also a surprising election in that I raise it up to the top because it's also one of the most important. I think along with 74. I'm going to get to another question in a moment. But I, I think as we've been talking, the one I would throw on the table that isn't obvious at all, but might have something to it, is 2010. The fact that the Conservatives weren't able to win a majority in 2010, the fact that the Liberal Democrats did both not as well as they could have done, but were able to hold on in terms of the size of the popular vote, but were able to hold on to all those seats in the way in which they were against what was supposed to be the Conservatives' onslaught against them. That would play out in 2015, but also the fact that Labour gained seats in Scotland in 2010, if you think about what's going to happen just like a year yeah. later. So that's switching the lens from what was surprising as it was happening to then, like if we try and tell our longer stories, 
there is something a bit odd about, I think, about 2000. Well, maybe 2015 to counter you on that, in that 2015, I don't think many people were expecting a conservative majority and people weren't expecting, even though the polls were suggesting it, the total collapse in Scotland. But I think that's what's not surprising, actually, because you've already had the referendum. Yeah. um, And you've seen the depth of the support there is um, for... SNP, they're getting still, was it 46%? Yeah. And then when you look at how inadequate the Labour campaign was in relation to Scotland, how it gave the Conservatives an open goal on the uh, Ed Miliband will be dominated by Alex yeah. Salmon, the English question like around that. I think when you look at that structurally, it's really very um, ex- explicable. Yeah, we should turn to second. I mean, one thing I, I noticed there as we were talking, Helen, is that it's interesting that a lot of our surprise results are actually quite modern when you think about it. So there's been a lot that we talked about there. Then the, the third question that we're going to answer today is, this is from um, Irish Agreement. Um, would the UK be better off today if Tony Blair, at the height of his power, changed the MP voting system from first past the post to some version of PR? probably including a bigger role for the regions of England. What do you think on that? This is a pretty hard question. In a way, I'm going to dodge it by saying (laughs) that I think that what the last eight years or seven years, going back to 2016, basically going back to the referendum, the Brexit referendum, and everything that happened in the Parliament between 2016 and 2019 showed how really vexed constitutional changes mm-hmm. in this country and how many unintended consequences there are. Think about the fixed-term Parliament yeah. Act, passed yeah. with hardly yeah. any contest during the coalition years, turned out to have profound consequences that it seemed like nobody had really thought through when it came to dealing with the, the Brexit question. We got into a situation in the autumn of 2019 where we had a government that constitutionally shouldn't have existed. And the central explanation for that was around the the fixed-term Parliament Act. So whilst I can see the attractions of saying certain aspects, perhaps certain destructive aspects of British politics over the last couple of decades might have been avoided by proportional representation, perhaps it would have involved more compromises. Those counterfactuals, I think, have to be worked out in their own terms. But just as importantly, we have to think about what would have happened that we wouldn't have imagined. Because what we saw with the Fixed Term Parliament Act is, is in a way, all the different bits of the UK constitution interact with each other. You change something and it has a lot of consequences elsewhere. And unless you're actually thinking about that as a whole, and there's no evidence, I think, at all, that the Blair government thought systemically, systematically, maybe that is word, about constitutional change. I mean, think of the the different piecemeal changes that they made. And when we ended up with a Supreme Court, you know, to yeah. deal with a cabinet reshuffle <laughs> yes. that, that Tony Blair wanted to make. There wasn't any sense when constitutional changes were being passed that there had to be any cross-party consensus around them. They were just pushed through Parliament with Labour majorities. So I, I think... If we try and imagine Tony Blair in practice doing that, I don't think he would have avoided all the dangers that going down that kind of road entailed. I completely agree. So the question was, would we be better off if the UK changed 
to some kind of PR? I think not, for the reasons that you've just said. Say the Fixed Term Parliament Act, as an example, I remember this ludicrous situation, as you're saying, Helen, when the government should have gone, the government should have fallen. We had Oliver Letwing coming up with clever ideas for... Was it the one of the committees to effectively become the government? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. And then the government would be naturally the opposition. And then we were going to have we were having those votes about whether the franchise was going to be changed before the election. Yeah. Yes. And we changed the franchise, obviously, for the 2014 referendum, just as a kind of as a sop because Cameron thought there was not enough danger. You know, it's ludicrous. I, I, another example from my end is that we changed. Um, to PR for European elections. Uh, this is what uh, one of the first constitutional reforms that Blair did. And a lot of people will say that he had no choice in that this was part of the European treaties. I'm not entirely sure that's right, or it had to happen in that way. I am convincible though on that point. But he did it. And the, the consequence was not just people like Nick Clegg being elected into the European Parliament, which was how people thought at the time that there would be a progressive majority, it would be locked in the European elections. But of course, Nigel Farage got elected in that first election to the European Parliament in 1999, I think it was. Now, you can make a very persuasive case that if that had not happened, if Farage hadn't been elected to the European Parliament, he would not have had his platform uh, to do these very effective YouTube um, clippable attacks on Herman van Rompuy and people like that. And he wouldn't have had the money that UKIP had. I personally think it's a fairly weak argument that PR will somehow protect British democracy from the extremes. I also think if you look at Germany and Spain, we've done an episode on this across Europe, it almost doesn't seem to matter which electoral system you have, the Dutch one or the German one or the Spanish one, all very different, the Italian, the French, there is a sizable support for parties outside the mainstream in every country and they're having a big effect. I think where the the question is right is should there have been a bigger role for regions in England or not necessarily right, but I think this does get at the problem one of the fundamental problems that Blair had in his reforms, and it really just kicked it to one side, didn't want to think about it, interrogate it enough. Um, I think this is the obvious criticism of Blair's reforms, the devolution to Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland at this point under a different system. And then just the assumption that it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter in England. If you go back and look at the debates, read them in Hansard, I think there's a really interesting challenge for people. If they, the right type progressive liberal people, you go back and read those Hansard debates and those that would often get dismissed as being reactionary throwbacks, they were far more on the money about the consequences of those reforms than the consensus view on the Labour benches, which everyone dismissed the threat to the British constitution and to the balance in Westminster and indeed, they said this would kill off independence, Scottish independence, stone dead, I think was the quote. So I'm personally, I, I don't think PR would make things better. We're going to finish this week's episode there. We will be back, though, with episodes in the future where we'll be taking more of your questions on other topics. So thanks again for listening. And as ever, please like and subscribe to These Times. These Times is produced by Ewan Daughtry. 